Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Jill Lavender. So on this episode of Lexis, we're delighted to interview Dr. Anna Islentieva, who is a lecturer and postdoctoral research associate in linguistics at Innsbruck University, Austria. And we were particularly interested in her paper entitled Real Men Score, Masculinity in Contemporary Advertising Discourse, which is what we're going to be primarily talking about today. So welcome, Anna. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and I'm also very grateful for this opportunity to be able to discuss our new paper published in the journal Critical Discourse Studies. It's a really, really lovely paper. So thank you for letting us have a look at it. And we'll and we'll put links to it as well in the in the show notes so that listeners can have a look as well. Now the, the paper focuses on representation of masculinity in print-based advertising. So what spurred your interest in looking at gender representation? I've always been interested in research that places emphasis on social aspects of language and examines discursive strategies in different types of texts, for example, media reports, political speeches, or tweets. So in 2020, my first monograph that analyzed the representation of migration in the British press was published. And that was your that was your PhD study, wasn't it? Right. That yeah. was my PhD study that was turned into a book and I'm very happy. Congratulations. And proud. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much. So I'm currently working, as Dan said, as a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Innsbruck. And one is supposed to start a completely new project. And I was thinking of researching into advertising as on on daily basis we're exposed to an extraordinary number of posters on the streets, commercials on TV, and nowadays also the internet and social media. Mm. And actually what, what struck me most is that many of these advertising campaigns use images of men and women, just images of people. Um, and unfortunately, some of these images could lead to stereotypical representation of men and women. That's why I thought that it, it would be a very interesting topic to research. So basically, that's going to be my, my second book, Gender in Advertising Discourse. Um, and I'd like to mention that I have a research team of three girls who are also the authors of the paper. I usually teach some classes on ideology and identity. And that was two years ago when the girls expressed their interest in, in doing and, and researching into gender and advertising. And that's how we formed research team in October 2021, I think that was. So this is how it's all started. So can you tell us a bit about the methodology that you used for this? So I suppose critical discourse analysis plays a, a big part in it, but there's probably more involved too, including corpora. Right. So one of my primary research methods is the critical discourse analysis. And you could apply this to different genres, as I already said, political speeches, media texts, tweets. And, and advertising. But I also combine methods, so critical discourse analysis and corpus linguistics. Corpus comes from, from Latin and stands for body. So a simple definition would be corpus is a collection or body of texts, mm. usually of different types of text that are stored on a computer and analyzed with a specific soul software, with a special software. So in our particular study, we employed the corpus of contemporary American English, 
probably you've heard of this, the COCA. And we searched for one particular term, namely real man, both in singular and in plural. And the search was conducted due to the frequent mention of the term in, in the slogans in, mm. from our sample. So just to give you a few examples, the strong beer for real man. This is called 45B adv uh, advert. Real man get more, real man score, which is also the title of my paper. This is from a German brand, Jupe, male fragrance. Yeah. Mm. Um, and perhaps you, you remember this campaign from Darth Man care designed for real man. Mm -hmm. So basically, this reference proved to be really frequent in the sample. I think out of 50 posters, we had it in, in 10. Yeah, right. I, was, I was interested in that, in, in which way around the real men kind of interest came in the, in, the, in the process of the study, whether you went in to look at advertising and real men came out so often that was the thing that you looked at, or whether you went in with a view of looking specifically for those words. The former, actually. So we, okay. just, start, we just started collecting data mm -hmm. and then it was striking real man or what real men want or care for real men or real men get it, milk for real men. I mean, you would be surprised yeah. to, to, to find <laughs> out how often, how often this term occurred. Mm. And what we did, we checked the corpus of contemporary American English. Uh, we, interest, we were especially interested uh, in the verbs that occur next to. So basically the research question was, what do real men usually do or what one does? or with real men, or to real men, right? Okay. Mm. And the three most frequent verbs were need, want, and feel. And some other interesting examples include play, fight, but also cry. And I think that's also very interesting to, to, to notice. So if you would like to hear some, some of the examples mm. from 2019, from a movie, but these are all examples from the corpus. You and your mom need a real man to protect you. Another one with fight. Why don't you come fight me like a real man? This is also from a movie from 2013. From a blog, he knows that real men do cry and need not be ashamed of it. Right? So we just looked what real men do and mm -hmm. what are the most frequent actions. But I should say that the corpus-assisted analysis was a uh, complementary one. Right? It, it complemented the discursive and the visual analysis. But right. we were surprised how they actually reflect each other and also influence each other. So basically, all the strategies that we found in advertising were also found in, in, in language, in American English in this case. Mm -hmm. And actually, the same, the same order of hierarchy. Yeah? So men have to be strong, men have to protect, men can fight. Men are also appealing and sexy. And we were really surprised that the, the order reflected. And this is, this is a difficult question to answer, whether it's a mirror, whether advertising just mirrors what's going on in society, whether it also shapes and molds. Mm. Also, perhaps you've heard of this mirror versus mold argument. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting one because lots of the work that I've that I've done in the last couple of months with my A level class looking at gender representation on verbs seems to support a fairly old fashioned view. I I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Halliday's kind of material and relational verb processes. So the idea that 
particularly in fiction and in narrative fiction, that male characters are frequently presented using sort of active verbs, which are considered material, and and female characters frequently presented using relational verbs that are passive or thinking or internal or sort of emotive. So I'm interested to hear that the most common sort of verbs that are kind of collocated with your real men ideas would be traditionally called relational verbs, kind of wanting and needing, perhaps? Right. But perhaps with need, we should always remember, because we looked also at um, subjects and objects, yeah? So a real man Mm. could be, and remember the example, you and your mom need a real man. Ah, Okay. okay. It's not that only real man needs something, but somebody needs, and I think... And that was uh, that was the pattern. Even it was more frequent. I want a real man. I want a man mm. that will protect and support me. So I oh, remember very many examples. Or another that was, and I think we mentioned this in in the article. It takes a real man to do something, right? Mm. It takes a real man to say sorry. Yeah, that one I remember. So you you should be always very careful. That's why there's a combination of methods. You just get a huge list of verbs, but then you have to look into them, yeah, into real context. And then only then group them together and and see what are the major uh, strategies. That's lovely. I mean, you mentioned there a couple of different sorts of adverts, things for movies, Dove. Um, What kind of of adverts did you investigate and how and why did you choose them and 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 how did you try and make them as you know as representative a sample as possible because that's obviously really tricky given the the sheer number that are available out there totally i should say that that has been a challenge but we succeeded so basically the sample is not very huge it consists of 50 posters that feature or refer man in their slogans yes yeah, sometimes they're just a bit a bottle of of a beer but it says made for man or beer for real man. So, for example, we had posters from 36 world-famous brands. Among the brands advertised are American Apparel, Clinique, Coca-Cola, Dove, KFC, McDonald's, Nike, Nivea. So all these world-famous brands mm-hmm. that really almost everyone knows, right? And the brands basically mostly come from UK and US, with a few exceptions for fragrances from France and Italy and Germany and Switzerland. But one very important criteria was language, and it was exclusively English slogans. So that that would made the comparison with the corpus of contemporary American English valid, right? So the slogans were in, in English. What's, what, what was also important, we divided the uh, products into five categories and the advertised items, mostly products of daily use, which corresponds to the sense of necessity rather than luxury. Mm-hmm. So, for example, beverages, food, daily care products, fragrances and clothing. There were just a few exceptions like luxury brands, Givenchy and I think Dolce Gabbana. So in your paper, you discuss Norman Fairclough's ideas about advertising and how it builds and personalises a relationship between the audience and the product. And I think, you know, for lots of us teaching the A-level, we would be familiar and our students would probably be familiar with this idea of synthetic personalisation. What did you notice about this in the advertising that you looked at? What what kinds of techniques were being employed? Right. Norman Fakelov, who is a British linguist and also a founding father, one of the founding fathers of critical discourse analysis. So he argues that advertising 
consumption communities. So basically, we are a society of consumerism and mature capitalism produced this mature consumerism. So advertising basically turns us into consumers by appealing directly to our needs, mm. to our values, to our tastes, and even general behavior. And they do this by, for example, employing uh, personal pronouns, which help them appeal directly to your needs. Just a few examples. Again, the campaign from Sunday, it's your perfect fit or your phone, your iPhone, an ad for, for iPhone. This is one of my favorite. There's a picture of Juicy Burger, and this is from McDonald's, and it says, the thing you want when you order salad, this is the burger. Right. <laughs> uh, right. And this is always you, you, you. So yeah. that, that really appeals directly to your needs, right? Yeah. And the one I also like from, from Nike, the shoes works if you do yeah, if you do work out, if you go, go to the gym, if you do, then the shoes also works for you. In our sample, I noticed the imperatives, verbs and phrases in the imperative mood. So, for example, get in the game. This mm. is a slogan from the Coca-Cola or that one I also like, unlock the W7 in you. So here we have actually two techniques. Yeah, this is the reference to James Bond, also Coca-Cola advertisement. The imperative, unlock, do something. And again, in you and the use of second person pronoun. So I think these are a few examples of how advertising personalizes a relationship between the audience and the product that they appeal directly to your needs through the use of personal pronouns and also active verbs in the imperative mood. Yeah. And of course, I suppose that the other thing that he's driving at, I suppose, with the idea of synthetic personalization is that it is, it's an artificial relationship isn't it and as you say some of those direct address things like I, I always kind of think of the L'Oreal one because you're worth it and I kind of think well they're not thinking of me because I have no hair I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worth spending that amount of money on a hair product for but it's it is that sort of assumption isn't it that you they know something about you totally and like you say that kind of mature capitalism mature audiences it's about seeing yourself in the product and feeling addressed yeah it's just that you need this care or you need to fix something actually with, uh, there's another research by one of my colleagues actually in, in the UK on cosmetics. I, I forgot her name. So she compared British and French newspapers or magazines that use um, advertising. And what she has found is that very often they refer to something that should be fixed with your skin that the skin is dry or the skin mm. is oily or that you don't have hair yeah. or something like this, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that there's this idea of fixing, improving yeah. yourself, right, by using our product. Yeah. I think this is, this is one of the key ideas in advertising in general, and it's still there. Mm. Yeah, and of course, because they're adverts, they rely quite heavily on visual elements as well, which you discuss at length in the paper also. So as teachers, sometimes we can be a little frustrated that our students find it difficult to talk about this meaningfully, that they can that they can sort of revert to describing what they see, but not really meaningfully <laughs> engaging with the analysis of the things that they see. So what sort of approaches are useful for analysing visual elements in advertising? Yeah, you are right. You are totally right that nowadays commercials employ this combination of verbal and visual elements. And visual 
is becoming more and more significant. And in fact, and also Naaman Fakelove argues that the image has become one of the main features of our contemporary postmodern culture. So the approach that we have employed is called multimodal critical discourse analysis. And this uh, is a combination of methods that looks at visual and verbal elements, right? And in our case, most of the time, verbal and visual elements interact with each other, but sometimes they also subvert each other. So mm. it's always very important to see whether the slogan reflects and corresponds with the picture. Mm. We employed Goffman's strategies. Probably you've heard of them. Irving Goffman is a Canadian-born American sociologist and psychologist. Very many papers actually in advertising employ his categories. I can give you a few examples like relative size, feminine touch, function raking, and licensed withdrawal. So relative size, the category indicates that gender differences in terms of height and image composition. So women are usually, not always, but usually depicted as smaller or lower than men. And this is called relative size, right? If you look, and usually men, they look directly into the camera while women often looking at them and admiring them. This is a typical feature of a fragrance mm -hmm. or in general right. perfume advertising. So what we did, like I can explain basically step by step, we employed a content analysis of each poster in question. Then we grouped them together according to major categories. And our categories that we identified, so this is our finding, were the following. Gentleman's look, gender equality and fatherhood, sex appeal, Sex appeal and dominance as the second category. This is always when men and women were represented at the same time in one poster. And finally, the idea of strength. So what is also important to remember that strategies always overlap. Most clearly that of strength and sex appeal and sex and dominance. So sometimes we have three strategies, right? When there is a man and a woman and there's a football player and he's topless, represented topless. So there's a three strategies mm -hmm. at work in one poster. So it was also sometimes difficult, but at some point we have to decide, so this is the major strategy here, right? And we identify this, for example, as strength, if they represented, which was a very frequent uh, motif, um, American football player. So at least I think three out mm -hmm. of 50 adverts used the image of an American football player. So in a way, I suppose, were you thinking about kind of the sort of symbolism maybe of some of the kind of choices of, you know, visual components of the ads? Were you thinking about, so you say the American footballer sort of perhaps maybe symbolises strength. Were you also kind of looking at individual visual elements like, you know, a close up on, you know, a bicep or something like that, or a firm jawline? The, the portrayal of masculinity in general turned out to be relatively stable and also stereotypical. Right. So male models featured in advertising campaigns are usually good looking, usually in good physical shape. This is kind of this idealized version of a man. So from diachronic perspective, so we looked at the posters within this 20 years period. So the most selling strategies were of a sex appeal and strength. So they're really stable. So if you remember, as I said, the American football player in the Coca-Cola poster from 2010 and in Clinique poster standing next to a girl 
and from 1999, right? That's the, so, one I, that's the one I really remember actually having having read the paper was that Clinique one because it was really stark visually. And for those and for those that haven't seen it, the, the Clinique one has sort of a very demure sort of 1950s almost housewife dressed. She's holding like a platter with a big cake on it. And she's kind of slightly back from him. And now that you've said it, I'm remembering that she was physically smaller than him and slightly in the background. And he was kind of this exploding and bright red American football player, full helmet, kind of almost sweaty, sort of glaring and leaping off the page sort of image. It was, yeah... I remember that really clearly from the paper. C- can you imagine? I remember the the post itself. I was, I don't know, 10 myself. And it was one of my mom's favorite perfume, this Clinique Happy. You can yes. still remember, you can still buy it. It's very old, orange bottle, really nice, fruity scent. <laughs> so I remember the post itself. Can you imagine? And what is there? Uh, it's important that the woman is static. As you said, she's holding yeah. a cake in a traditional dress, white, very neat, very lovely. Yeah, and, it's a bit and, of Stepford Wives, if I remember rightly. Sort <laughs> yeah. of very 1950s exactly. domesticated image. Yeah. And the and the the man or the male model is very powerful and strong and he's in action as if he's running. Right. So again, this idea of dynamic and static mm. representation. Yeah. So the the sort of focus on masculinity that you take in the paper is a really interesting one. I'm going to sort of try and break this question down into a few different bits, but you, you talk about hegemonic masculinity and you draw on, I think it's Raywin Connell's use of that term and this idea about sort of dominance of males in society. But you also reference, is it Rudloff and the view that there are also kind of limitations and restrictions that are placed on men to be a certain kind of man. So you get this sort of sense in which there's kind of both dominance, but also maybe limitation for men in the way that they're represented. So I suppose that sort of leads on to this idea that there are multiple representations of masculinity at work. And I think you write in a paper, you say male consumers thus frequently face an internal personal conflict between conforming to social stereotypes and breaking away from hegemonic masculinity. What, what do you think comes through in the, the ads that you've analysed around that sort of representation of different kinds of masculinity? As I, as I said, um, we, we were to a certain extent surprised, but also not very much surprised. The representations are, are very stable, right? So the idea of strength, the idea of protection, but we also found the idea of fatherhood, which again reflects the hegemonic masculinity, right? You, you have to be, or a real man has to be a good dad, a good father, right? Who also protects and takes care. Again, take, take care was one of the frequent collocates found in the corpus mm. of contemporary American English. The strategies of sex appeal and sex and dominant were also prevalent in the sample. So in 20 out of 50 posters, the male models were either topless or their T-shirt revealed much of their naked body, which again suggests the objectification and sexualization of men in advertising. Mm. So Mm. this is a similar strategy that is very frequently identified in reference to women. But within this sex sell strategy, so men were also portrayed as sex symbols. And this is perhaps this epitome of masculinity that's almost not achievable by, by real men. And this is where this idea of hegemonic masculinity, but also that male consumers 
have this personal conflict that they, not all of them look like this. Not all of them mm-hmm. have a six pack. Not all of them are comfortable without a t-shirt. Um, but the advertising proved to be really, really stable and very stereotypical in this respect. Right. There were some interesting instances where the adverts appeared to sort of subvert that trend. So there was there was one that talked about real men wear pink or real men operate complex machinery, but the picture is of a man in an apron in front of an oven. What does that add to it, did you think? This, this one I, I particularly like. So this is Duff Man Collection. And they kind of recontextualize. So the the general strategy that we identify was of equality, gender equality, but also fatherhood, right? So this lifting, like, like these traditionally male activities are being recontextualized. So for example, heavy lifting is not heavy lifting in the gym, but heavy lifting stands for playing with and lifting real children. Mm-hmm. And this is the poster. So this is a dad who is holding a girl and plays with her and lifts her. And another one with complex machinery, men operate complex machinery, but there's a guy wearing the apron and operating the oven, cooking something. So we consider them to be as a move towards gender equality, perhaps even with a bit of a, I don't know, irony, but still here we see in these posters the representation of shared responsibilities around the household and also a shared responsibilities in reference to your kids and taking yeah. care of children and taking care of babies. So we had five posters from this collection and they all, to a certain extent, either represented a shared responsibilities around the household or taking care of kids. And we are doing this together with a woman. And so was that, was that a minority representation? Was it a smaller number than the rest? It was this only collection. Right okay. from from Duff. And in terms of irony as well, sort of linked to that. I mean, you kind of talked a little bit earlier about how you're using the corpus and you're finding collocates, and then you're sort of looking at those in context. That contextual focus does that then allow you to observe some of the irony that might come through in some of the semantic choices? Because I guess if you apply sort of a sort of blanket, these words are positive, these words are negative, you you might kind of miss some of that kind of irony coming through. Right. So ironic uses are are extremely important and sometimes very difficult to pinpoint because Mm. you need this larger context. And through these corpus linguistic methods, it's not always easy to do this because, as I said, you get a a long list of verbs. And in order to see what is meant by this, you have to go into the larger context, yeah? yeah, on the right, on the left. So I'd say we didn't encounter very many ironic uses. So they were, most of them, as I said, the, the idea of strength, the idea of protection, the idea of taking care, or there was very many wanting and needing, but in a sense, like, I want a real man, I need a real yeah. man. And I guess if you do come across ambiguity, your multimodal approach means that you you can unpick that, can't you? Hopefully. <laughs> yes. You mentioned at the end of the paper as well that it would be interesting to you know, pursue this by looking at non-mainstream advertising to explore masculinities that go beyond the kind of hegemonic norm. So you talk about maybe kind of looking at queer masculinities, those where there are different cultural norms that you know, might be at work. What do you think you might find with those kinds of ads? Where, where could that take you? We've already seen that a few brands, for example, Calvin Klein, 
Mac and Skinny. Skinny is an Austrian brand of underwear, advertising underwear. So these are brands that also, among others, promote diversity in some of their recent collections, mm. for example, Pride collections. So what we saw was a bit more diversity in terms of body types, physical abilities, and also activities that are usually performed by men. So just to give you an example, in MAC adverts, male models advertise and apply mascara, lip gloss, nail polish, and also wear more vibrant colors such as pink and orange. I haven't said yet, but the most frequently used colors in, in our sample were dark colors, gray, black, blue, dark blue. In non-mainstream advertising or when we are looking at queer identities, we could see more vibrant colors. So also men wearing pink, men wearing orange, and men applying mascara and also advertising mascara. And Dan really liked a particular phrase that you yes. used in the paper about the gentleman's look. What, what is that? Can you tell us a bit more about it as an idea? Like the, this one we also liked, but it proved to be not very frequent, only five cases out of 50. But it's this idea of also strength, but in a way, chivalry. Yeah, this being a gentleman. So these male models are also typically good looking, sometimes a little bit older, classy, posh, neat, sometimes mysterious. So they also often wear, not, not also, but they wear a suit in contrast to the <laughs> topless models. So they wear a suit and an example would be the actor George Clooney, whom right. you, I guess everyone knows. So yeah. he's there advertising Nespresso in a white shirt and black suit, holding a cup of Nespresso and the slogan reads, pure pleasure is inside. So something like this, we <laughs> classified this as an idea of gentleman's look. Right. Also, if you remember, that's why we also decided to take uh, Givenchy as a luxury brand. It's another example that features the Australian actor Simon Baker in the Givenchy poster and for the fragrance named Gentleman Only. So here we already have right. this word in the slogan or in the name of the fragrance. And the poster depicts a man, Simon Baker, holding up his umbrella so as to shelter a female model from the pouring rain, which can be interpreted as an act of chivalry. Mm -hmm. right. And again, the man is doing, is active, right? That's what just Lisa said, mm -hmm. back to the idea of holiday and, and his verb. So I'm holding an umbrella, I'm protecting my woman. And she's mm -hmm. there standing completely lost. You couldn't see her face. Mm -hmm. There's rain and there's wind. And again, the same idea of a static, and dynamic representation of male yeah. versus right. female models. So okay. it's very stereotypical. And I think it's a poster from 2017 or 16. So the posters are not really old. You kind of say, okay, it was like 20 years ago. No, it was a few years ago. Mm. Yeah. This is idea that is there. So it's a different version of masculinity, but it's equally grounded in fairly stereotypical ideas. Totally, totally. So yeah. all of this just confirms this idea of hegemonic masculinity. You have to be a gentleman, you have to be strong, good looking, and mm -hmm. also a good father. So, I mean, we didn't find all five categories in one poster, 
But at least, as I said, there were many cases where the categories overlap. At least three of them were at work at the same time. Thank God I'm all of those things. Otherwise, I'd feel really insecure. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So to the quickfire questions, what's your favorite book about language? I'd say it's a book entitled American and British English Divided by a Common Language. It was written by Paul Baker and published in 2017. So Paul Baker is a professor in linguistics at the Department of Linguistics and English Language of Lancaster University. One of my favorite linguists also. I, I, I He's very prolific as well, isn't he? He's always right. bringing a book out. Yeah, and he, I feel like rock star of linguistics. He's, that's how I introduce him to to my students, and we we really enjoy. So I use this as a as a textbook. It's it's a brilliantly written book. It also rather complex. It uses corpus linguistic mm -hmm. methods, but it's easy to follow, and it's a good text for undergraduate students in advanced modules. So this is my favorite. One of my favorites. Right. And what is your favorite linguistic fact or idea? I find fascinating the idea that a word can display a variety of semantic nuances within different contexts and that words generally tend to have numerous related senses. And then depending on the context, the word acquires not a new, but a slightly different meaning. And I think that's, that's fascinating. And this ability of words is known as polysemy. And polysemy seems to be the norm. Although new words might at first have only one sense, these normally become polysemous very quickly. Do like, you have a particular word that you like? I think every English word is like this. Like literally, <laughs> I mean, a very simple example would be table. It's, it's a yes. table, like a dinner table, whether it's a desk, whether it's a timetable, where it's a table you need to submit in order to get a good grade for a linguistic term paper. So, I mean, just table, just think of table. It's so polysemous. And what one bit of advice would you give to a budding linguist? First of all, I'd like to say that I really like the metaphor you are using here. It's like a researcher being a plant or even <laughs> a, a flower. I, I, I really enjoyed this one. I actually have two pieces of advice. So the first one would be actually to any student and any scholar, any researcher, I would recommend researching and doing analysis regarding the topics that you really care about, that you're really passionate about. So I think this is, this is key to success. This is definitely, you should be passionate about what you are doing. And the second bit of advice would be to work with real data, to work with authentic data, not to reflect or observe, but to get your hands onto political speeches, tweets, Instagram mm -hmm. posts, advertising campaigns, so the more data you analyze, the more reliable your results are. Brilliant. Top Great. advice. That's so helpful for Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, guys. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure discussing our research with you. Right, so in this Lang in the News segment, we're going to have a look at some recent and some older stories about accommodation. So this is linguistic accommodation. 
and ideas around convergence where your speech style moves towards other people and divergence where it moves away from other people and this comes about from a number of recent stories but one just over the last couple of days where politicians or potential politicians southern politicians who want to get seats in the north of England have been advised by Conservative Party central office to do a number of different things they've been told to think about the demographics of the area where they are thinking they would like to stand, thinking about some of the ways in which they might represent a northern constituency with its own particular context and profile. And the advice from Conservative Party Central Office adds, if you are not local, consider your transferable attributes and how you would ingrain yourself in the local community becoming more localised and parochial. And at the end of this, one of the commentators who's, who sort of publicised this in the Daily Telegraph says, I would recommend adopting a strong Yorkshire accent just to be safe. Now, I don't think the last bit's entirely serious, but certainly that whole idea that you, if you want to stand as a Conservative Party politician in the north of England, that you should immerse yourself in the local community and become more northern is quite an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, there are there are plenty of Conservative MPs that stand in, in northern constituencies. And, I mean, we've got Sunak, haven't we, whose uh, his own constituency is, uh, is North Yorkshire, Stokesy, around Stokesy, that area. And I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's, it's the idea that the, the, the accent that you use is a marker of your identity. And mm. it's a... Also a, a marker of, of solidarity, perhaps. And I think perhaps that's what, what what they're getting at here, that, you know, you need to be seen to be part of the region that you're representing. Obviously, if, you know, if you're a southerner representing a northern constituency, that gives you a little bit more of a challenge. I wonder as well, I mean, it, this whole idea that it would come under the sort of heading of like transferable attributes, it's like some yeah. sort of commodity and the accent becomes very much part of that, doesn't it? Some sort of you know transferable skill that you can turn on and off. Yeah, and th- there's something I don't know. It feels a little bit disingenuous, doesn't it, to suggest that you need to adopt an accent or a- adopt a persona, perhaps that's not perhaps truly yours, but is going to be more palatable to the to the people that you are wanting to vote for you. And I think this thing, the thing about the sort of political connection with all of this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's very much part of this sort of idea that if you are trying to gain elected office, you have to do certain things to appeal to your electorate. And one of those might be sort of blending in and appearing to be similar to your audience. But it's often that's the the kind of jarring part of it often comes when that kind of assessment of your audience and what they're like is at odds with you know, how they actually are, or it's it's based on a stereotype. Yeah. So are, are you thinking about Sunak and his, um, yes. <laughs> his recent, his recent would, would you call it downward convergence? I'm not sure. I think so. Um, yeah. yeah, he was, he was talking to, he was reported talking to, was it a set of kind of Essex business people? He was responding to to a man in the in the audience and saying that he was going to sort out some problem. And he was picked up for saying things like, all right, Yes, yeah. In quite an emphatic way. But there's a clip. I'll play the clip here. We want to clamp down on it. And part of this plan, the hotspot policing, is going to help do that. And then the digital tool for people to report it quickly and get it dealt dealt with as well. All right? Good. What? So it's this this kind of man of the people persona, isn't it? That that I presume that's what what he was going for. But it it did kind of prompt a little bit of ridicule. Yes. (laughs) 
Oh, so we've got a, a Twitter co- quote from Alexandreo saying that it's hilariously inauthentic um, and sheer desperation by an out-of-touch rich boy trying to show that he's in tune with the public. So not mincing his words there. But it, it's not. It's something that we've we've heard before, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, we've we've had you know in the not too distant past, we've had uh, George Osborne speaking. I think he was he speaking to. Morrison's um, workers, wasn't he? That's that's yeah. right. Yeah, speaking to Morrison's workers, and it was that kind of, what was it? What kind of more estuary English? Yeah, features. yeah. Um, it was similar kind of things, though, wasn't it? It was definitely kind of glottalization. Mm-hmm. So, the, and and maybe the kind of L vocalization. So they like all right instead of all right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, similar kind of pattern to that, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And that I think it was it was partly the Rishi Sunak thing was also accompanied by a double thumbs up, as he said all yeah. right. So it's made him sound a little bit more like some sort of TV presenter or Jonathan Ross. It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, you think, well, it's it's something that to a certain extent we all do. We all have mm. kind of a repertoire of, of speech styles that we'll we'll select from according to the kind of context, the setting, the relationships that, that we have with people. We, we all do it. Yeah. So it's interesting that we respond. It it just feels a little bit cringy. That's my response to it. It just Yeah, just, definitely. There's something there's something not quite right here. And I'm just wondering, you know, what, what do you think's behind that? Well I think it's something about sort of inauthenticity, isn't it? And I mean, it's that whole idea of like being our true selves is kind of held up as being something that's quite important. But as you say, we all we all accommodate to some extent. I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't. And just as a sort of side kind of link, there is a really good article by Jane Setter, who's a linguist at Reddit Mm -hmm. and the conversation.com, where she talks about some of the reasons why people sort of change their change your accents or don't. But that that sort of idea that, you know, particularly with politicians who might be from a very privileged background. So, you know, George Osborne, he was some sort of baronet, um, I think Eton educated. Rishi Sunak went to Winchester, you know, private school. You've got Tony Blair. So it's not just, you know, conservative politicians, Labour mm-hmm. ones as well. He he went to an exclusive public school in Scotland, I think, didn't he? You know, that you've got politicians of different sort of political stripes who yeah. might come from privileged backgrounds, who see this idea of like becoming the sort of man of the people and dropping their H's and glottaling their T's as being something that's immediately going to ingratiate themselves with their, their electorate. So it feels like an easy trick to kind of mm. change how people might perceive them. Because if they're speaking with more of an RP accent, we know that that has connotations, you know, it's it's related, it's a prestige accent. Yeah. It's, you know, it signals power and privilege. And it's the idea that they would just throw in a couple of different vowel sounds to to become more palatable or, or to yeah, yeah. some kind of solidarity with people. And you think, well, if feels inauthentic it feels yeah it definitely feels kind of schooled doesn't it yeah it's it yeah it's this idea i mean it goes back to you know that where we started you know advice that's given to mps to you know give them an advantage Mm. to to make them more successful yes yeah and i think that that links perhaps to you know the, the 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 kind of schooling that you get sometimes the other way around where where you can change your accent and move away from a regional mm. accent to an RP accent for your particular advantage rather than 
kind of normally when we're we're adjusting the way that we talk, we're doing it because we want to have relationships with people. Yes, we want yeah, exactly. Yeah. Seen on a, you know, on an equal footing with people who want to be um, to have successful relationships. It doesn't come down to power, and I think maybe that's yeah. the difference. Thing. Yeah, but the power. I think the power things it in a nutshell, isn't it? And that's that's what maybe kind of it, it's that power differential, isn't it? Seems to mm. kind of create that jarring effect with it. And I think it's. I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned that you know the RP has got like prestige. Yeah, definitely, it definitely has, doesn't it? And you can see, mm. you know, you can see someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. He makes no attempt to change from an RP yeah. accent. Boris yeah. Johnson never did. He always yeah. sounded very upper class, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and sort of true to his roots. So there's there's a degree of like that sort of confidence in your own accent where you think this is the language of power. I'm not going to, you know, mm-hmm. get away from it. But other people feel that they have to accommodate, don't they? To, to you know, in a, in a sense, to gain some power. You mentioned George Osborne there's, and, you know, I mentioned Tony Blair a minute ago, but there was even Ed Miliband when he was leader of the Labour yeah. Party. Yeah. There was a really interesting interview he did with Russell Brand before Russell Brand became yeah. a complete maniac. And it was, he he was criticised for becoming more estuary. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing with Ed Miliband was he he had a fairly kind of estuary accent anyway, yeah. to some extent. Yeah. I think was sort of brought up, went to you know state school in London. I'll put the link into the show notes, but he definitely, but during the interview, you could hear him sounding more, you know, more estuary. So there's this what would be kind of interesting, I think, is to have a look back at all of these and think about some of the ways in which it's particular features of speech that often are seen as a sort of markers of downwards convergence. So, you know, like the glottaling, the L vocalization to become more estuary. Are there any other sounds maybe that are, you know, that are changing or sort of signify a more kind of working class or, you know, man of the people voice? And have a look back through some of the older stories as well. So, I mean, there was a, a, another recent article in The Telegraph, and, and this was looking at accent and, and modifying accent, but thinking about how academics are apparently dropping their regional accents to fit in at elite universities. And it, it's, I mean, it, it's a story about how those with broad regional accents suffer tacit prejudice, it says, at top universities and feel obliged to adopt posher accents to avoid being patronised, according mm. to that's the, the, the strap line. And I thought that was, that's an interesting one, thinking about how the relationship between accent and kind of professional roles and expectations of those who, who have professional roles and it reminded me of, of, of somebody that I used to go to, to university with who, when I first met him, had a, a really strong Geordie accent, was from a, a family of, of, of builders. And he was, you know, he was studying literature at, at Leeds University. Mm. And all the way through, all the way through university, he, he kept hold of this accent. And it is interesting because I can remember at the same time phoning home and my brother being appalled that my accent had shifted <laughs> without me knowing it. Yes. <laughs> and he told me to come home and sort my accent out. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, the, you know, this lad didn't. But then um, recently in lockdown, I came across a clip of him on YouTube, and I was really surprised that his accent, now that he's a university professor, has modified, you know, quite a lot and moved away from, I mean, it's still Northern, but moved quite a long way away from his kind of strong Geordie accent. Mm. And it made me think, you know, is is that due to the, the kind of implicit prejudice or is it due to kind of like expectations of how you should speak if you're yeah. a 
Super Professor. Um, I guess like power as well, isn't it? It's sort of institutional power, isn't it? That you feel aware of that and needing to change to to kind of fit into those power structures. I mean, it, it made me sad when, when I heard him. It felt as though there was some part of his identity that he'd had to suppress to be, maybe to be taken seriously. It links to study that's been done by Barata in Manchester fairly yeah. recently, doesn't it? Where he's interviewed teachers entering the, the, the teaching profession and, and found, you know, they, they quite often talk about how they have felt the pressure to modify their accent or they've been told by people in, you know, senior positions to them in, in schools to, to modify their accent, to be taken seriously and to, to be seen as professional. So that's it for this episode of Lexis. Thanks very much for joining us. And thanks also to Anna for the interview earlier. We'll include in the show notes a link to the paper Real Med Score. And we'll also include a link to the study about peptidizing, which was carried out by Helen Ringrow and is in her book, A Language of Cosmetics. And we'll be back again soon with another episode. 